are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I am a pastor. I'm a preacher. Uh, I'm also the author of a Bible commentary that people mostly use online. And that Bible commentary resonates with some people, and it's useful. It's on a website called EnduringWord.com. It's completely free, and it's ad-free, and it's just available for people to use. It's available in English. It's available in Spanish. And in an increasingly and uh, in, in an increasing number of languages, we're adding content in Arabic, in Mandarin, and soon to come, we're going to be adding some in Russian and Italian to the website. But matter entirely, what I do here on Thursday afternoons is I get together with a YouTube family and we talk about questions that people have about the Bible, about the Christian life, about other things. I respond to those questions the best I can. I don't pretend to have all the answers by any means, but I do enjoy these Thursday afternoons whenever I can, whenever I've been in town or I have access to a good Internet setup and the time. Uh, we do these Thursday afternoon sessions starting at 12 noon Pacific time. I don't know what time it is for you in your time zone. I know we get people from all around the world, and I'm glad we could come together for these sessions on Thursday afternoon. I usually like to begin with a few questions that have come in via email or comments on our YouTube channel. By the way, I invite you to write your questions or comments in the chat window, and I'll get to them the best that I can. Uh, but when I can, I like to begin with some of the ones that have come in through comments or email. Here's one from Joanna. Joanna writes this question, and it's an excellent question. Let me just read it to you. She says, as technology continues to advance at an exponential rate, I see more new ethical issues arising, such as AI, that is artificial intelligence, being put into robotic human forms and what the world is using them for. Not unexpectedly, the sex industry and human companionship are also affected. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Well, Joanna, you are raising interesting questions that I think we in the Christian community are just beginning to grapple with. And I think one of the things that we're going to have to do in response is make even more clear our insistence on the uniqueness of the human being. The human beings are made in the image of God. This is in contrast to plant life, of course. This is in contrast to animal life on this earth which we regard there's value in plant life. We shouldn't uh, wantonly destroy animal uh, plant life on this earth, nor should we be cruel to animal life on this earth. But all the while we recognize there is something unique about human beings, about the human condition, especially when it comes to what might be thought as um, pretended human beings that we would call robots or artificial intelligence. So one of the things, Johanna, that we're going to have to do is have an even firmer grasp on the idea of the uniqueness of the human condition. If we do not, if we consider humanity to be just the um, collection of random occurrences, just 
the end result of an evolutionary process that will continue on, why wouldn't we consider robots and artificial intelligence just another aspect of that development? And so we need to make the line even clearer, even more clear, I should say, between human life and uh, mechanical aspects, computer aspects, uh, animals, plant life. There's something unique and God-ordained, made in his image, about human life. Now, understanding that dividing line, we can, things that artificial intelligence and robotics and mechanical things, they can be accepted as our servants, but never as our masters. And as servants, not on the same level as human life. Now, you also raise things having to do with the sex industry and such. This is something that we have to really, again, put forth in a strong way that God's fundamental purpose for sexuality. I'm not saying it's his only purpose, but the fundamental purpose that God has for sexuality is for it to be something that complements and strengthens the one flesh relationship that exists between a husband and wife. And so that ties into other complicated processes. I hope maybe to deal with this in greater depth on another YouTube broadcast and maybe could be something more dedicated towards that. But I think the big response for us as Christians needs to be a promoting of the idea and a strengthening of the idea of human beings being something special and unique as we are made in the image of God. Next question comes from James. James asks this question. He says that in Genesis chapter 37, verses 33 through 35, it says that all his sons and daughters arose to comfort him. This is speaking of uh, Jacob. And he asks a question. Why is it termed daughters in plural if Jacob only had one daughter named Dinah or Diana? Why is it that it says all his sons and daughters? We know from the biblical record that Jacob had many sons. He had 12 sons. But why is it that he only had one daughter that's recorded, yet it says his sons and his daughters came to comfort him? Well, James, I think that's a great question. Let me answer it the best I can, giving attention to two ideas. The first idea is sometimes this, is that in biblical terminology, especially in the Old Testament, the term sons actually many times has the sense simply of male descendants and can be applied to uh, children, grandchildren, and sometimes even great-grandchildren. Just that simple idea of sons. Okay, we have that idea. The same principle, I don't have any doubt, can also apply to granddaughters. So daughters, granddaughters, and even great-granddaughters can be included under that idea of daughters. So while it may be that Jacob only had one daughter named Dinah or Diana, uh, he actually could have had more, and no doubt did, granddaughters and even great-granddaughters. It could be reference to that. There's also the possibility that Jacob had more than one daughter, but only one is mentioned because she's the only one that had a special relevance or place to the um, biblical story as it unfolds. Listen, sometimes both male and female sons and daughters are not mentioned in the Bible 
if they just don't have a special place to the story. So we shouldn't take the fact that additional daughters are not mentioned to make it mean that it's impossible that he had. And then the third possibility is it may be included among daughters, the daughters-in-law that he had. The biblical text may be considering those as the daughters of Jacob. But again, a great question. All right, let me come on over now to our chat window and take a look at some of these questions or comments that have come up. Sean says, Hi, Pastor. Excited to see you at Joshua Springs soon. Do you think it's okay to say that it was Jesus in the burning bush of Moses? Well, Sean, that's a great question. Was it Jesus speaking to Moses in the burning bush? That goes back to Exodus chapter 3, where God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. And, Sean, I'm going to give you an answer that comes off the top of my head. I'm going to say that it's not necessary to say that it was Jesus speaking through the burning bush. Now, it, it could have been, but we reserve the necessity of it being Jesus making a pre-incarnation appearance in the Old Testament. We reserve that for when God appears in human form. And we have to say that God did not appear to Moses in human form here. He appeared to Moses in the form of a burning bush, which, by the way, was something of a picture of grace. How so? Well, fire is a picture of judgment in the scriptures. And the particular bush that burned seems to have been a thorn bush. And thorns seem to be, at least metaphorically, connected with the idea of the curse. Because in Genesis chapter 3, when God put a curse upon Adam and Eve, and the serpent for that matter, one of the aspects of the curse was that they would be cursed to have thorns come up from the ground. So if you have an emblem of the curse, a reminder of man's sin, burning under judgment, yet not being consumed, because that was really the big thing about the burning bush. Not that there was a bush burning in the wilderness. That happened with fair regularity. But that it burned, yet it was not consumed. That was something remarkable. Again, that's the appearance. All it was was a voice that spoke to Moses. And the voice could have been the Holy Spirit. It could have been God the Father. It could have been God the Son. So I don't see a necessity for saying that the appearance that God made to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 was Jesus. Could it have been? Yes. But I don't see the necessity that it was an appearance of God the Son. All right, next question. Uh, Anthony, thanks, Pastor, for answering my question last week. Hey, Anthony, glad you could join us for the live chat today. Very pleased to everybody who could join us. Uh, even though I know we don't have a huge live viewership, I'm absolutely amazed at the size of the viewership that some of the other people have on YouTube and the live chats that they do. But I'm very grateful for the community that shows up and interacts with us. So God bless you, Anthony. I'm very glad that you could join us this afternoon. Alice said, hi, David. Uh, am I right in saying that before the original sin, God didn't command Adam and Eve to eat animals, but plants and animals, plants and their eating animals happen only after the fall? Okay, Alice, it seems that it's even more extensive than that. It seems, and we know this from the text having to do when uh, Noah and his family came out of the ark. It seems that perhaps even before the flood, that entire period, however long that was exactly, that before the flood, 
mankind did not eat animals. And it was only after the time of the flood that God put fear into the animals. And their response was to flee away because they would become uh, that, that mankind for the first time would become hunters and sort of predators over animals. Now, we can't say that for certain because it's a little bit of an argument from silence. But it does not seem that Adam and Eve ate animals in the Garden of Eden. It seems that the first animal death that's described is the death that happened when God clothed Adam and Eve with the skins of animals, uh, that an animal that God had sacrificed, that God had killed for the sake of its skin so that he clothed Adam and Eve, which is just sort of a prefiguring of the whole sacrificial system right there. So, Alice, I'm going to say that you're correct in saying that animals were not killed for food before the fall. And it may very well be that Adams were not killed for food until after the flood, at least according to the biblical account. We don't have as much information on this as we would like, but that's how it seems to be in the scriptures. And so, listen, if a person today wants to adopt a diet that is meat-free, they're certainly free to do so. And if they think it's better for them health-wise, absolutely uh, they are permitted to do so. But there's no biblical command or justification for us doing that in the present day. All right, next, uh, Simeon Fuchs, who has an outstanding YouTube channel called Swedish Homestead. I recommend it to you all. Simeon and Alex Fuchs uh, present this question. They say, hey, David, I recently read a quote that said, Grace didn't save Noah. Obedience did. I was upset at this statement. What is your take on it? I am thinking of this verse. Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. Genesis chapter six, verse eight. Well, um, I think I would take issue with that quote that says grace didn't save Noah. Obedience did. Unless now I don't know the context of the person who made that quote, but unless they mean it simply in the sake of. Uh, in the case of, I should say, in the way that James speaks of obedience later on in the book of James. When James talks about Abraham being saved through his works or through his obedience, James means it in this sense, that Abraham was saved by his works or by his obedience because they were evidence of the faith or the grace that was in his heart. Now, if that's the sense in which the author or the speaker made that statement, maybe you could agree with it. But if he's trying to say that Moses, excuse me, Moses, I meant Noah. If I've been saying Moses, I mean Noah. Noah's salvation, just like anybody's salvation, is only on the basis of God's grace. And even if the person means salvation in the sense of being rescued from the flood, that uh, it wasn't grace that saved Noah. It was his obedience to build the ark. And that's what rescued him from the cataclysm that came upon the earth. OK, I, I understand that. Again, what even gave Noah the ability to obey God? It was God's grace working in him. Remember what Paul says in First Corinthians, chapter 15. He says that I am what I am by the grace of God. And he says, it was God's grace working in me that enabled me to be faithful unto God, to work harder than any of the other apostles. We recognize, I think when we're really walking in God's spirit and obedience to his word, we recognize 
that even our obedience is something worked in us by God's grace. Now, let's understand. God is not going to obey for you. God isn't going to have faith for you. But he's going to work in you by his grace in order so that you will believe, in order so that you will obey. Even our obedience and our faith is the gift of God's grace, and we're grateful for it. Um, so, yeah, Simeon, I, I would, just like you, I would disagree with that statement unless he made it in a very, very kind of narrow and specific way. Okay, continuing on, uh, Blanca says, Hi, David, love your work. Use your new app every day. Greetings from Denmark. Well, right now, I think we've got viewers from uh, Sweden, from Denmark, from South Africa, from California. Um, wow. And uh, Ruth says, adds on to this, please post the name of your new app. Okay. If you go on the iTunes store, the app store, and look for the app under the name Enduring Word, you can find our new iTunes app. Now, right now, the app is only available for iPhones. Soon, and when I say soon, I mean hopefully within the next couple of weeks, not only are we going to have a much newer and improved edition, an update for the iPhone available app, but we're also going to have the app available for Android. And i got to say, I'm pretty pleased. As a matter of fact, I'm more than pretty pleased. I'm very pleased. We've had almost 10,000 downloads of the app just in the first month, month and a half. Uh, I think that's a wonderful thing. It's absolutely free. There's no charge for it. And what the app will enable you to do is access the text commentary that we have online in a quicker, cleaner, easier fashion. And the new edition of the app will include improvements such as access to our audio that's available on podcasts, which is extensive, covering all the books of the Bible that I have taught through an audio sense. It'll also include not only the podcast, but it will also include um, a scalable text and landscape mode so that if you turn your phone to the side, you can access it as well from the side as well, not just in the regular mode. So we're looking forward to those improvements. Again, search on the iTunes store right now for Enduring Word, and you can get the app and download it. But soon it will be available also for Android. And by soon, I hope in the next couple weeks. All right. Thanks for that, Blanca and um, uh, Ruth. Great to see you again, Ruth. All right. Denise says this. Um, Our pastor insists that the sign gifts of the Holy Spirit ended with the apostolic era. How can I answer him since I really do not see this from the scripture? Thank you, and God bless and prosper you. Well, Denise, I think that's a very interesting thing, because this is something that's believed broadly in the Christian world, that there are certain gifts of the Holy Spirit that ended with the apostles. And it's an interesting kind of thing, because I don't meet anybody who thinks that all the gifts of the Spirit ended with the apostles, because certainly they think like the gifts of teaching Uh, Certainly, they think that the spiritual gifts of being a pastor or an evangelist, that those continue to the present day. So kind of nobody believes that all the gifts of the Spirit ended with the apostles. But rather, kind of what they do is they kind of divide up the gifts of the Spirit into certain categories. And they say this category of the gifts of the Spirit has passed away and is no longer available to believers. 
But this other category of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is available for believers today. The the first thing that strikes me about that question is, uh, nowhere in the scriptures, again, I'm talking in the Bible, in the Bible, we nowhere have this strict categorization of gifts. Paul never wrote to us. Jesus never describes Peter, James, John, Jude, the author of Hebrews, whoever it is. None of them give us this strict um, categorization of gifts. So this is something that we impose on the text. But Paul didn't say, "Okay, there's this column of the gifts. This is column A. Now, here's something completely different. Column B of the gifts. And here's column C of the gifts. Now, if they had given us such rigid categories of the gifts, then maybe we would have more of a warrant, more of a reason to say that the gifts are in categories and we can cross out this category for today. But I don't think they do that. Now, if there is any kind of type of gift or style of gift, I don't think it's sort of a gift that has passed from the world today. But I would say this. I would say that there is an authority. Authority of the gifts of the Spirit that is not the same as it was in apostolic times. And what's that authority? I would say it's what the Bible kind of says, at least refers to in concept, if it doesn't use this specific language. What has passed in the world today is apostolic authority. The gifts exist, but there is not first century apostolic authority as there was in the days of the first century apostles. So when Paul and other New Testament writers spoke with apostolic authority, it wasn't up to the church at that time to pray about it, seek the Lord, judge such things as if they really were from the Lord or not. No, no, no. It wasn't their purview to do that. They were to accept them as being apostolic authority. But that same authority of the gifts doesn't exist today, even though the gifts themselves do. So maybe, Denise, that's the first thing I would just kind of take a look at. This same general idea that the Bible itself does not categorize the gifts. So why should we give them these rigid categories if the Bible itself doesn't? Now, that's not the only argument I would make, but I think that's a great beginning point. And just realize that this is something that is not only broadly spread in the Christian world, people who think that all the gifts of the Spirit are not for today. But there are many people who believe in the existence of the gifts today who give reason to doubt the gifts. When we see craziness happen in the name of the Holy Spirit, when we see things that if they are not blasphemy, they border on blasphemy. Things happen where people say they're moved by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit led me to do that and the Holy Spirit direct me to do this. And it's not biblical. Sometimes it's blasphemous or bordering on blasphemy. This gives reason for people to discredit and reject the gifts of the Spirit. Sometimes the worst friends. No, let me put it to you this way. Let me change that around. Sometimes the greatest enemies of the work of the Holy Spirit are the pretended friends of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we just get this, that um, there's a bad reputation because of craziness out there. But in my view, the existence of craziness uh, doesn't 
discount the existence of the genuine. And I think that there is a genuine, legitimate, supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that God wants to do among his people today. So that's just one answer. Denise, I think if you look on our website, especially take a look at the teaching I've done on 1 Corinthians chapters 12, uh, 13, and 14, that might also be instructive for you. So again, Denise, that's a long answer to your question. Susan writes, and she says, was the rock that Moses struck instead of spoke to Jesus? Is this why he was not allowed in the promised land? Um, it's an interesting question that you ask there, Susan, because in 1 Corinthians, Paul points out that the rock that followed uh, Israel in the wilderness was Christ. Um, I'm trying to think of the specific passage that it is. For some reason, my mind clicks that it was 1 Corinthians chapter 4, but maybe it wasn't chapter 4. You know, I just want to let you people know, I haven't memorized the Bible chapter and verse. A lot of these things, I just kind of have a vague, um, okay, I think it was around here in the text. And sometimes, excuse me, got to lick my finger to get to the Bible pages better. Um, I'm taking a look at... The text here, well, I'm not seeing it right off here in 1 Corinthians where Paul makes this idea, where he comes to this idea. Well, I'm not finding an immediate. Okay, it's, excuse me, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So, a rock that miraculously provided water for Israel in the wilderness and in some way that probably can't exactly comprehend, that rock followed them in the wilderness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, that that rock was Christ. Now, whether or not that was the same exact rock that Moses struck, we don't know. Let me say this, though, that if you go back to the Exodus record, and I think this is actually contained for us in the book of Numbers, when you go back to the book of Numbers and see the situation where Moses struck the rock instead of speaking to it, his sin as it was described there back in the book of Numbers was that his sin was because he disobeyed God because God told him to speak to the rock and not to strike it. Now, it may be an additional uh, aspect that the rock represented Christ and Moses was not to strike Christ. But the most pointed aspect was that he disobeyed God because God specifically told him, speak to the rock. He didn't tell him to strike the rock. And instead, Moses struck the rock. So we can't say for sure that that is the rock that Moses has in mind in 1 Corinthians 10, but it may very well have been. I hope that answers your question, Susan. Um, Agnes says, hi, Pastor David. How do you get back with God after backsliding? You know, Agnes, that's a great question. And God bless you for asking this question. I think that's a very meaningful question for Christians to address. I would just simply direct you to what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus in one of the letters that Jesus dictated to the churches in Revelation chapter 7. 
Notice what he says to this church that had left its first love. He says, verse 5 of Revelation chapter 2, Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. So first, consider where you were when you backslid. Number two, repent. So repent of that backsliding. Have sorrow and turn around because repentance means more than having sorrow. It means to do a 180 in your actions. And then it says, and then do the first works. Those things that were the first foundation of your Christian life, reading the Bible, getting together with other Christians, prayer, worship, evangelism, those things that were the beginning of your Christian life, go back to those first works. So remember, number one, repent, number two, and then resume those first works. That's a great three-step plan. And as I just figured out, those will all start with R. Remember, repent, and resume. Go back and do those first things that you did in your first Christian life. That's a great beginning for coming back from backsliding. And um, if that applies to you or to someone you know, Agnes, God bless you for asking that question. All right, next question uh, comes from Mictalia. I don't know the uh, handle exactly. It says, David, are thoughts sin? Like, I have some thoughts that I don't want to have, but only for some seconds, then I move on, and then I feel guilty for hours. Okay, well, let me answer this question. Are thoughts sin? And I would just say this. It depends. It depends. A thought can be a temptation. But when we take that tempting thought and choose to hold on to it and to meditate on it, and to turn it around in our mind and to sort of cherish that thought, that's when the thought becomes a sin. So if you ask that simple question, are thoughts sin? It kind of is, it depends. It can be. A thought can be a passing thought. And listen, if a thought comes into your mind and you let it pass, I would say that that thought has not become sin unto you. Not at all. Uh, But If you cherish the thought, if you hold on to it, if you meditate upon it, then you're choosing to embrace that thought. You've taken it from being a temptation and you've let it be a sin because you've grabbed onto it. So I would just say if thoughts are passing through, let them pass. Let them just pass on. If you're just holding on to them for a few seconds, then let them pass. And then you could say, well, no, that thought wasn't a sin. It was just a temptation. And if you feel guilty over temptation, not over sin, but just over temptation, if you feel guilty about that, then you know that that guilt is coming from the devil himself. He's accusing you as his pattern. And just let that pass and say, no, Satan, I know that I'm not being, I'm not sinning here. I'm being tempted and that I have a great Savior in Jesus Christ. And look, I know literally that it's probably not Satan putting that, but one of his emissaries, one of his delegates. But nevertheless, you kind of get the idea there. Okay, and then this is going to be the last question I take from the chat window here, uh, even though I am going to ask her one uh, answer one more question that came in online to conclude with. Uh, Avis says, Dear Pastor, one of my friends is finding it difficult to pray and meditate on the Word of God Due to the continued misfortunes and family problems, how to win him back to Christ? Well, listen, uh, Avis, thank you for that question. And obviously, I would just simply say this. Um, I'm sorry to hear about your friend's condition. 
and how it is difficult for them to pray and meditate on the word of God. The answer that comes immediately to my mind, what could be a help is praise. Look, sometimes when we have trouble reading the Bible, sometimes when we have trouble praying, sometimes really the key for us is to praise and to praise God in song. Now, singing is not the only way for us to praise God. We can also praise God through the words that we speak, through the heart that we have, towards the actions that we do. All those things are different ways that we can praise God. But one of the prominent ways that God says he wants to be praised is through song. I would recommend to your friend to sing songs of praise, even if they don't feel them. Sing them in hope of the feeling. And what's right to praise God with good songs of worship and praise to praise the Lord with those songs. And oftentimes that can have a work of softening our heart, preparing our heart to receive more of the word of God. Uh, every week I send out a devotional email. And a couple weeks ago, I dealt with a passage in First Kings chapter three, where when the prophet Elisha wanted to prophesy, he said, bring me a musician. And it was as the musician prayed that God stirred his heart. Well, this all connects with the idea of worshiping God in song and how that can be an extremely beneficial thing for us spiritually. So a great question there, Avis. I don't know if you pronounce your name Avis or Avis, but it's a great question. And God bless you for that. All right. The last question that I'm going to deal with on our live broadcast today is another one that came in uh, from someone who often joins us on our live chat. It's uh, Neely. And Neely asked this question. Hi, Pastor. Um, I grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist religion, but I was born again in the year 2011. And my biggest struggle was Sunday worship, but I've overcome that. She says, I have a lot of family that are still SDA, Seventh-day Adventist, and I was wondering if you had ideas or thoughts on how to approach them about it in a loving and careful way. What specific scriptures can I share? Now, I would say this. And, Neely, your question was a bit longer than that, but I'm just kind of get to the point here. Um, Neely, you make a valid observation in some of the question that you wrote to me that I didn't read, that there is a um, whole span of people in the Seventh-day Adventist um, faith, whatever you want to call it. Some of them are basically evangelical Christians who like to worship on Saturday instead of Sunday. And maybe they like to eat vegetarian instead of eating meat. Some of them, it's that simple. There are other Seventh-day Adventists whom, and I'm going to say something that's strong, but I think it needs to be said. There are some Seventh-day Adventists for whom their Seventh-day Adventism is basically a cult. They exalt Ellen G. White to an ungodly place of authority and prophetic authority. They regard people who don't share their peculiar views about Saturday worship and vegetarianism and other such things. They regard those people as being uh, marked by the Antichrist and headed to hell. There is a segment of the Seventh-day Adventist community that is in something like a cult. And there's a segment of the Seventh-day Adventist community that is almost indistinguishable from evangelical Christianity, except that they like to worship on Saturday and a few other peculiar things. I think a lot of the approach that we have towards them is based on where they're at. 
If somebody regards their Saturday worship and their dietary habits and other such things, if they regard this pretty much as just their preference in the Christian life and what they do in their own Christian expression, then I really have very little to say to them. God bless you. Serve the Lord as he's given you to do. Because we must say, if a Christian prefers to worship God on Saturday rather than Sunday, there is no biblical command against that. You you can feel free to have Saturday your day of worship instead of Sunday. You have the liberty in Jesus Christ to do that. But just don't think it makes you any more right with God. If you want to have a vegetarian diet and you think that that's better for you and your health and maybe for you in particular, it's better for you spiritually. Wonderful. Praise the Lord. You have the liberty in Jesus Christ to do that. Just don't think it makes you any more right with God than a believer who eats meat. So there's that. Now, for people who are more on the dangerous end of the Seventh-day Adventist continuum, my biggest message to them would be simply this is where does it end? Either we are under the law or we are not. If we are under the law, we are under the law. If we are under the law, then you should start sacrificing animals. But if you want to say that the law is fulfilled in Jesus Christ when it comes to the sacrificial system, then really it is also okay to say specifically on a New Testament basement that the law is also fulfilled when it comes to the Sabbath. Either the law is fulfilled for believers or it is not. If it's not fulfilled, then we're all in a lot of trouble and we should start sacrificing animals. If it is fulfilled in Jesus, then we have liberty in Jesus Christ and we should rejoice in that liberty. Neely, that's the general tact. That's the general way that I would deal with those. But again, if there were people in the Seventh-day Adventist community that are just basically evangelical Christians who prefer Saturday worship, then I, I wouldn't even bother. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. All right, I'm just going to take a quick look more at the chat window before we sign off. Uh, you're very welcome, uh, McTayla. Avis or Avis, you're welcome as well. Um, thank you, Mr. A-R-D-B-Z, whatever that is. And then Daniel, uh, excited for the Exposure Collective coming up. Yes, you should be. Um, uh, you should be excited for that. Uh, in, uh, April, I think it's the 4th and 5th of, uh, no, actually, I think it's the 5th and 6th of April. Let me look quickly here at my calendar. April 6th, 5th, April 5th and 6th in San Diego, we're doing something called the Expositors Collective. And this is a, it's not a conference. It's a special collaborative seminar, I guess you would call it, where we talk about expository teaching, especially geared towards young people, coming up April 5th and 6th, 2019 in San Diego. Um, if you're a young person, I think we're defining young as being like 30 and under, something like that. You're welcome to join. We want to pour into you and teach you how to be a better expositor of God's word, especially towards the purpose of being a better preacher or teacher of God's word. Uh, you can get information online. Uh, just Google Expositors Collective, and you'll find the website and the sign-up information. You can join us for that. Um, you also say there, Daniel, you mentioned that you had a book that you recommended going through with a group of men, or do you recommend anything? Uh, Daniel, I'll just give you a quick thing, just right off the top of my head. Spiritual Leadership by Oswald Sanders is an outstanding book. If you haven't read it and gone through it with a group of people, go through it. 
If you have read it, go through it again because it's a great book to go through time and time again. All right. Well, we're about at our 40 minute mark. Thank you to everybody who's tuned in. Thank you for everybody who's going to watch this after the fact. Remember to click the thumbs up because the more likes we get, the more visible it is. Even though I know we're just a humble little YouTube channel, I'm happy that with Leaf we've crossed the 3,000 subscriber barrier. If you haven't subscribed to the YouTube channel, we invite you to do so. Check out the Bible study materials that we have on uh, EnduringWord.com. And especially thank you to those who support the ongoing work of Enduring Word. Without you, I don't think much of this would be possible. So God is using what you do to get these free Bible resources out to all the world and in an increasing number of languages. I'm very happy about that. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, I anticipate that we're going to be able to be back next week, although I'll be able to do it on location. I think we're going to be able to be back next week and do this live as well next Thursday. Please join us and thank you for joining us today. Uh, I enjoy these times together. God bless you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.